Hello, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you all very much for coming. So uh, this episode is slightly different from the other episodes we've done. In this episode, we are going to talk about a game. Uh, it's called the Devil's Card Game. And so I've been corresponding with this professor called uh, Professor Henk Timms. Uh, he's a Dutch professor. Uh, he, he is a professor emeritus. He used to be a professor of probability. And he has a large number of different puzzles. And some of these puzzles are especially relevant uh, to investing. And uh, he, he had this game called the Devil's Penny game. And then what I did was I modified that puzzle a little bit. And we have this Devil's Card game. And this game, it, it illustrates so many important concepts in economics, in psychology, in probability, and so on. And so I'm thinking if we just go through this game, just think through uh, what are all the various possibilities and things like that, it will teach us so much about investing. So that's the broad idea for this episode. So let me first describe the game. So the game works like this. There are 11 cards. So 10 of them are good cards. They are double cards. You can think of the double cards as they help us double our money. Uh, but then there is one card, which is a devil card. And what this devil card does is uh, it divides our money by 2048. So uh, if, if you look at the 10 double cards, if you double your money 10 times, uh, you will make uh, 1,024 times your money. So if you, if you start with $1 and you double that $1 10 times, that $1 becomes $1,024. Um, but then if you apply the, the devil card to this, uh, what, what happens is uh, this $1,024 is now divided by 2,048. And now uh, you're left with less than the $1 you started with. You now have only half a dollar because of this devil card. So if we have a game like this, if we have these 11 cards, so there are uh, 10 cards that double our money and one card that divides our money by 2048. If we have these cards uh, and if we have them shuffled in some random order, so we are not going to know which order we are going to get these cards. Now the question is, uh, how many cards do you draw from the pack before you stop. So uh, you, you, you can decide whether you want to draw one card or zero cards or five cards or whatever. Um, so you can keep drawing as many cards as you like, but if, if you keep drawing cards, eventually you'll get the devil's card. So, so now the question is, where exactly is the optimal point to stop in this uh, game? So when, when should we stop drawing cards? And so just to crystallize some numbers, I said, okay, let's say we start with $1 million. Instead of $1, I have $1 million. And we'll talk about the significance of that uh, a little bit. Uh, so if we start with $1 million, now a lot of comments that I got said, uh, no, no, if, we, if you give me $1 million to play this game, I will just exit with $1 million. I will not even draw a single card because what if I draw a single card and that card happens to be the devil's card? Uh, then I'm, I'm basically stuck, right? Um, so this is, this is a reasonable point of view, but it's, it's, that's not the only point of view. So there are some concepts here 
uh, that that we have to uh, sort of get through. And uh, so, so if this is the broad question, uh, the the whole field of economics and uh, math uh, since 1738, uh, when Daniel Bernoulli first published a, a paper on the measurement of risk, uh, people have been trying to answer questions like this. Economists have been trying to answer if you have a particular probability distribution of outcomes, how do you figure out what is the optimal way to bet on that probability distribution? This is an age-old question, and it's it's been asked by mathematicians, it's it's been asked by economists, and so on. And over the years, uh, we have several answers uh, that have been proposed to this. So one one way to sort of understand how to analyze this game is to just go over those different answers that have been proposed uh, in, in the literature by economists and mathematicians. So that, that is one thing we can do. The second thing is uh, there are a lot of psychological aspects to this problem. Uh, so the uh, playing this game, uh, it, it helps us examine our own psychology a little bit. And so if we are aware of some common psychological pitfalls and things like that, uh, it, it really helps uh, to analyze this game much better. So on the, on the one hand, we can tackle this game from a purely mathematical e economics style standpoint. Uh, on the other hand, we can also analyze this game behaviorally from a, from a psychological standpoint. So we, we, can, we can look at both of those. Uh, so the first uh, method that was proposed uh, is to maximize expectation. So this expectation maximization is a very, very common thing in economics. So essentially the, the theory is like this. If you have a probability distribution, uh, it's too difficult to look at the entire distribution uh, to make a decision whether to bet on this distribution or not. Uh, instead of looking at this entire distribution, just calculate the expected value of this distribution. And then if the expected value is positive, uh, go for it. If the expected value is negative, uh, don't go for it. This is a very simple way to place a bet. Um, you, you bet only on things that have positive expected value. Um, and if there are many ways to bet, you pick the one that has the highest positive expected value. So that is one way to sort of uh, think through uh, uh, this, this particular game. So what happens? here, if we apply this expectation maximization to this particular game is, well, so first of all, if we get a devil's card, we are drawing cards one after the other, there are 11 cards, we don't know what order they are in. So suppose we get the devil's card. Then one immediate thing we can say is we know there's only one devil's card in the list. So as soon as we get the devil's card, we know that all the other cards in the list must be double cards. So we don't have to stop at all. So one, once we get the devil's card, we should continue playing this game until the very end because we know that all the future cards are going to keep doubling our money, which is a great thing. So, so, so that, that, that is the first sort of observation. So if, if we get a devil's card, we have to play all the way to the end. And if we play all the way to the end, uh, we'll be left with 500K. If we start with $1 million, uh, we, we'll, if we play all the way to the end, we will have 10 doubles and one devil and that will cut our money in half and so we, we are going to be left with uh, we started one million dollars so we are going to be left with 500k at, at the end of it 
so now the question is okay if we if we get a devil's card we are going to play all the way to the end but what if we don't get the devil's card so suppose we take three uh, three cards if we draw three cards and all of them happen to be doubles now our 1 million uh, has uh, doubled three times so now we have uh, 8 million dollars should we quit or should we uh, draw another card uh, now that question to answer that whether we should quit or not uh, we can look at a bunch of different strategies so let's let's say our strategy is to quit after k doubles so what that means is uh, if we 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 draw k cards from the list so uh, obviously k has to be less than 11 uh, so so we we draw k cards from from the list and if all the k happen to be doubles then we just quit the game we we walk away with the money that we have if even one of the cards uh, is a devil uh, well if if one of the cards is a devil there, there can only be one devil so if one of the cards is, is a devil then we play all the way to the end so this is a very simple strategy we draw k cards if all of them are doubles we just walk away if uh, uh, if if we have the devil's card in the middle then we play until the very end now this is a very simple strategy and the question now expectation maximization the question is okay what is the expected value of this strategy uh, so what what happens if you stop after zero cards so if you stop after zero cards you just take your uh, 1 million dollars with you right so um, that that that's an expectation of uh, uh, 1 1 million dollars from from this game but what 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 if for example you you don't do that what if you uh, say you're you're going to go through uh, two two doubles. Uh, then what is the expected value of of this uh, this game? So you you can think of asking what the expected value of this game is for any number of uh, in any number k where you're going to stop after k doubles, and you can calculate the expected value of this. And it so turns out that uh, if you calculate the expected values, uh, what what happens is uh, you will want to play until the very end. So so if you stop after zero draws, your expected value is one million dollars. If you stop after one draw, your expected value is one point eight six million dollars. If you stop after two draws, it's $3.36 million. And it keeps increasing all the way up to 10 draws. And if, you, if you've drawn 10 cards and they all happen to be doubles, uh, then of course you, you're not going to draw the 11th card because you know that the devil has to be there in the 11th card. So um, this strategy, if you, want to ex if you want to maximize your expected value from this game, uh, you will have to play the game until the very end or un until 10 doubles. Um, now, th the question here is, okay, uh, but this is a very risky game. And as you keep playing this game, the game becomes more and more risky because the number of uh, doubles in the pack keeps decreasing with each individual draw. So the probability of getting the devil keeps increasing with each individual draw. And the devil has a very, uh, it's, it's a terrible consequence because it immediately slashes your wealth by a huge factor, 2048. Uh, 
but still if you were to follow the expected expectation maximization strategy uh, you you will still go through all the 10 draws and uh, the reason why it works this way is because at each turn uh, a doubling dramatically increases the expected value and and because the doubling increases its uh, increases the expected value uh, it, it's it's almost like a double or zero kind of bet and um, a, a double or a, it's not exactly zero because it's one divided by 2048 so it's it's a double or a small positive quantity kind of bet and a double or a small positive kind uh, quantity is always going to increase your expected value and so uh, as you keep going on the expectation maximization will tell you that you have to choose uh, to play as many rounds of this game as possible. Uh, so there, there were some other solutions. So I talked about this uh, this great mathematician, Daniel Bernoulli, and he had this wonderful paper where he said, no, 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 you should not just look at the expected value because the expected value is something that that's the same for everybody. Uh, so if, if you give me $1 million, Versus if you give Elon Musk $1 million, the $1 million has an enormous amount of impact in my life. It can completely change my life, but it, it probably won't change anything in Elon Musk's life because uh, the, the guy is worth $300 billion or something like that. So what is an extra $1 million going to do uh, for him? Nothing much. So uh, what Daniel Bernoulli said is, it's wrong to look at just the expected value in terms of dollars you have to look at something called the utility of those dollars. So essentially, this whole uh, idea of economics uh, is that you shouldn't look at just wealth in dollar terms, you have to look at wealth in utility terms. So to somebody like me, $1 million may have a lot of utility, but to somebody like Elon Musk, $1 million doesn't have a lot of utility. And so when you're trying to decide which kind of strategy to follow or what kind of bet to place on this particular game, uh, you have to maximize not the expected value in dollars, but the expected utility of those dollars. And it turns out that if you maximize the expected utility of those dollars, you'll get a completely different solution. So depending on what your utility function is. Uh, so, uh, uh, each person has a different utility function. It's uh, how, how much utility do they derive from an additional dollar added to their net worth? So people who already have a large amount of net worth, they don't derive much value from an extra dollar. But people who have only a small amount of net worth, they derive tremendous amount of value from each extra dollar. So uh, depending on your utility function, you may decide that, okay, once I've doubled my money three times, I've got my $8 million, um, that is more than enough uh, for me and I'm going to quit this game. Uh, I, I'm gonna walk away with my $8 million because that maximizes my utility, even though it doesn't maximize my dollars. Uh, so so it, it, you have to take the expectation of the utility of wealth as opposed to just expectation of wealth. And that gives you uh, what's called a different solution concept to uh, figure out what is the optimal bet for this game. So that is another way to sort of think about how, how you would go about betting in this game. Uh, so that, that's the second concept. 
the third concept of betting is something called uh, the Kelly strategy. So th those of you who follow me on Twitter know that uh, I, I write a lot about uh, Kelly and Shannon's demon and, and things like that. So essentially, Kelly strategy applies when you're allowed to change the size of your bet. So if you have this, uh, this game, and uh, if, if you're allowed to change how much you bet on each individual card, so it's not just $1 million and then uh, that $1 million goes through a series of doubles and maybe one devil. It's, it's not that. You can decide how much to bet on each card before you see the card. If you have a game like that, then you can use some Kelly-inspired strategies to try and figure out how much to bet on each round of that game. And uh, the, the basic idea behind Kelly is very simple. You don't bet all your money on anything that can lose a lot of value significantly. So here we have a, a possibility for a significant amount of loss, which is the pulling the devil's card. So when, whenever you have a possibility for a significant amount of loss, you don't bet all your money on that bet because you could then uh, incur that significant loss. So what Kelly does is it advocates betting only a fraction of your bankroll on any individual round. So if, if, you, if you say, if, if you have $100 and you decide that you're going to bet 30% on this round, so 70 of your $100 are not at risk at all. Only 30 of the $100 are at risk. And those $30, of course, they could double, they could get divided by 2048, whatever. But uh, the $70 are not at risk. So what Kelly is, is a system for betting, uh, which is based on this whole idea that you don't bet your entire bankroll. You bet only a fraction of your bankroll. And what is the best fraction to bet and things like that? Uh, Kelly devised an entire uh, uh, system to, uh, to, to handle all this, uh, to, to figure out all this. And uh, so that that's system is called the Kelly Criterion. Um, so so there, there is a certain amount of math involved and it's very interesting. But uh, the, the basic idea is you choose how much to bet on based on the long run growth rate of your money. So don't try to maximize expected value or anything like that, expected value of wealth or anything like that. You try to maximize the expected value of the growth rate of wealth over the long term. So this is, this is Kelly's idea. And you can apply this idea to variations of this uh, this devil's card game as well. Uh, the fourth and final optimization is known as uh, Markowitz optimization. So uh, Harry Markowitz was a famous scientist, um, and uh, he he was thinking about the the problem of how to construct optimal portfolios and things like that. So when when you have a large number of uh, stocks and bonds and different kinds of assets, and those assets are all correlated to each other, uh, how do you come up with the portfolio? And he uh, suggested one particular way of thinking about it, which is what he said is, okay, you have two things. You have risk and you have return. Let's assume that you have some way to measure risk. And let's assume that uh, return is fairly easy to measure. Uh, so what you want to do is you first figure out what return you want. And then you construct a portfolio that gets you that return with the smallest possible amount of risk. Or vice versa, you figure out how much risk you're willing to take. And then for that amount of risk 
try to get a portfolio that maximizes your expected return. So this is called mean variance optimization. So you either maximize the return uh, for a given level of risk, or you minimize the risk for a given level of return. So that is uh, Markowitz's way of thinking about this kind of problem. And that can also be applied to figure out how, how to bet and how much to bet and, and things like that. Um, so uh, of course it requires having some definition of risk and so one commonly used definition of risk is uh, standard deviation or variance. Um, and if you use that uh, standard deviation or variance as a measure of risk, then uh, you can sort of apply Markowitz's theory and try and figure out what is the best way to bet on, on a given a bunch of possibilities. Now, of course, there are lots of problems with Markowitz's uh, model. And in fact, people like uh, Warren Buffett have often spoken out against it. They, they they essentially they don't buy this idea that standard deviation equals risk um, and they, they have valid points standard deviation is not really a, a measure of risk because typically in the market standard deviation is calculated as a function of volatility or something like that and we, we all know that short-term volatility may or may not represent long-term risk and so uh, Markowitz's theory, uh, these people say, people like Buffett say, is, is not all that applicable. But this, I, I think there's nothing wrong with the theory itself, except that uh, the, the implementation of the theory today, or pretty much every single implementation we have, is um, by taking volatility and equating that to risk. And that uh, way of implementing the theory may be flawed. But the theory itself, which is to maximize the return for a given level of risk, uh, that I think is a is a reasonable theory. So so there is that approach as well. So these are all the quantitative uh, mathematical uh, ways to think about different kinds of betting strategies for this particular game. And uh, learning about these strategies, learning how they work and how to apply them to simple situations like this will give us a lot of insight into uh, how, how to apply them in, in real life, in markets, and, and things like that as well. Uh, or, or at least that is the hope. Uh, so now let's go and uh, let's talk about the psychology of this a little bit. Because I said that there, there, there are the quantitative things, which is the economics and the math. Uh, and then there is the, the psychological aspects of this puzzle. So one very common psychological aspect is when I when I give this question to somebody, uh, they immediately like to ask, okay, this $1 million that we have initially, is that my own money or is that house money? Uh, do I get this money just for playing this game? And so there is a bias hidden in this particular question. So I, I, I ask, how, how does it matter whether this 1 million is your own money, uh, which you brought to the table? or if it is house money, which you get uh, just by walking in and playing this game. Either way, at the start of the game, you're given $1 million or you bring $1 million and you can take that $1 million out. So for all practical purposes, this $1 million is yours at the start of the game. But uh, as humans, we have a tendency to treat house money as different from our own money. So uh, in, in the markets, what what happens is uh, if, if a stock has run up a lot, uh, we, we are happier to take risks with 
the profits earned from that stock as opposed to the principal that we contributed into it. Uh, and this is a well-documented effect. It's called the, the, the house money effect. And uh, it's not strictly rational. So if you have $100, it doesn't matter whether the $100 came from profits or whether it came from principal or whether you had to work hard for it or whether you found it on the street. It, it just doesn't matter uh, how the money came, uh, came to you. Uh, how you use that $100, what kinds of bets you place with that $100, uh, none of that should depend on how you got the $100 in the first place. Uh, so this is a very common fallacy. And a lot of people sort of fall prey to this fallacy. So that is the house money effect. Uh, the second kind of effect, which is very related to the house money effect, is the sunk cost fallacy. And the sunk cost fallacy is basically, uh, for a, uh, the, the, the most common example of this is going to a movie. So let's say, watch a movie. And let's say within the first uh, 15 minutes, you realize that the movie is terrible. Um, and uh, okay, of course, the movie has the chance of becoming uh, better later on, but the chance is very low, say. Now you have two choices. Uh, you can either exit the theater immediately and maybe save yourself a couple of hours or whatever is left on the movie. Uh, or you can sit down and watch the movie and, um, you know, most likely the movie is going to be a bad, terrible movie. And so you're not going to have a good time. So you're going to suffer for the next two hours. So now the question is, uh, should you suffer for two hours or should you get out? Now, most people, if it was a costly movie ticket, they will stay on in the, in the theaters. But this is the sunk cost fallacy. Basically, uh, the cost that you paid to get into the movie is no longer relevant that cost, you're not going to get that cost back. Uh, it is just sunk cost. And uh, the decision that you have to make now is how to optimize your happiness over the next two hours. So are you going to be happier if you get out of the movie or are you going to be happier if you stay in the movie? Whatever happened before you got into the theater, all the costs that you had to incur and things like that, they are no longer relevant to making a decision about the future. Uh, but still, a lot of people fall prey to this uh, fallacy. And I have also fallen, uh, you know, I, I've done lo lots of things based on sunk costs uh, and, and things like that. Um, so if I, if I buy a stock and the, the stock goes down a little bit, I sort of anchor to the price at which I bought the stock. And I have often held on to losers, uh, e even though it became clear to me that I made a mistake and I should probably exit this position. Uh, it is still, I have already spent this money to get into the stock. And so I, I don't want to get out uh, at a loss, things like that. So we are very prone to these kinds of psychological biases. And analyzing games like this will help us sort of identify these biases in our own thinking. Uh, so if you want to learn more about uh, these kinds of biases, I, I, I have a few books I can recommend. So one excellent book is Thinking Fast and Slow by uh, uh, Kahneman and Tversky. They've written a, a wonderful book. It goes into uh, all kinds of details about various kinds of psychological biases and things like that. Uh, the second thing uh, I would recommend is Richard Taylor's books. So Richard Taylor has a, has a couple of books. Uh, one of them is called Misbehavior and the other one is called Nudge. And uh, they're both very good books. 
they teach you a little bit about the psychology of investing and um, participating in the markets and, and things like that. Uh, the third uh, thing I would suggest is uh, if you have this book called Poor Charlie's Almanac, uh, I've spoken about this book quite often on this show. If you have that book, uh, there is a chapter in that book called uh, The Psychology of Human Misjudgment. And uh, that chapter is essentially a speech that Charlie Munger wrote. And in that speech, he outlines uh, 25 common psychological biases that uh, investors have and how it's good to be aware of all these biases and things like that. So if, if you can go through that chapter, uh, you, you will see a lot of parallels between this uh, devil's card game and some of those psychological biases. So, uh, so, so these are broadly the things that I wanted to talk about in this show. So there is the mathematical aspect of it. There are the four uh, solution concepts, expectation maximization, expected utility maximization, and uh, uh, Kelly betting and Markowitz betting. Those are the four quantitative things. And then there are a lot of psychological biases and factors as well that we have to be aware of when playing such games and betting on such things. Um, so the, the last resource that I would recommend is uh, uh, anything written by Ed Thorpe uh, on the Kelly criterion or uh, uh, card counting and things like that. So this, this game is essentially structured as a card counting game. So card counting basically means you draw cards from a deck and then you keep track of what cards are uh, have already been drawn and what cards are still remaining in the deck. And then as those cards change, uh, you uh, mentally keep note of the probabilities of different outcomes that can happen. And then you decide how to modify your bets based on that. This is the uh, basic uh, principle behind card counting. And Ed Thorpe uh, has written uh, a wonderful book called Beat the Dealer. Um, which which gets into card counting and how to use Kelly strategies in in conjunction with card counting and all these different things. So it's a, it's it's a great read. If it's it's a very short book, so you'll you'll probably finish it very quickly. But uh, it's it's a very nice read, and I, I recommend that. Uh, so broadly speaking, these are the things that I wanted to talk about, and uh, I'll be uh, ha happy to take callers now. Hello, Manu. And I didn't have the unmute button enabled earlier, but uh, thank you for holding this session. A uh, couple of questions. So in the Devil's Card game, I didn't get a whole lot of chance to do too much of a pre-read, but uh, from a position sizing perspective, two questions, right? So first is, uh, I believe position sizing is allowed. Uh, that was one of the questions I had asked earlier in the chat. I don't know if you had a chance to look at the chat. Uh, uh, from a standpoint of when we apply this to say speculation right from a asset market perspective or investing perspective right kelly criterion specifically uh has been a bit of a challenge because it does dive into expected value uh and many cons they try to come up with the expected value using some sort of uh, uh some sort of an indicator in form of average to range or some uh, other mechanisms that, you know, how much does this stock move in a given hour based upon last 50 hours or last uh, 20 days of trading between, say, 1 p.m. and 2 p.m. if that's the hour that they're trying to look for. Or you might be doing a pair trade and that's that's where they get the expected value from. 
have you tried applying Kelly criterion in asset markets, be it in equity markets or commodities markets or any other markets? And if yes, what kind of mechanism have you used to uh, place the expected value in your models? That's the first uh, question I have to follow up later. Sure. Okay, great. Uh, so, well, there are there are several parts to this question. So to, to answer the, the, the last part, so I uh, mainly participate mostly only in the stock markets and options markets. So I don't, I don't do any other kind of trading. Uh, so it's just stocks and options for me. And I've used the Kelly criterion on occasion uh, a few times. Let, let me try to explain. So yes, you're right. Kelly criterion does require calculation uh, of an expected value. In, in fact, it requires optimizing uh, an expected value. But it's not the expected value of a stock price or the expected value of your wealth or anything like that. So many of these other methods, uh, they... Uh, if, if you look at traditional economics textbooks, they ask you to maximize the expected value of your profits or something like that. Whereas with Kelly, what you're doing is you're trying to maximize the expected value of the growth rate. And that makes a huge difference because it, uh, it builds in a certain amount of loss aversion uh, into, the, into the model itself. Uh, the second thing with Kelly is it the if if you look at the, the theory and how Kelly derived his formulas for uh, uh, maximizing the the expected value. Um, so uh, the the way Kelly uh, derived it is by assuming that you will be able to place the same bet at the same odds many many times in succession. So uh, if, if you have a, a stock that say either, either doubles or halves in, in value. Now, what Kelly said is it's not enough for the stock to just double or half, uh, say in the, in the next one year. Uh, the, the stock should be able to do this many, many, many years uh, into the future. And so in any given year, you may lose money. It's not double or half. Uh... I think what you're talking about is probability distribution, right? So probability distribution of how much it would move is the applicable part of what Kelly is saying. Because I think I'm just trying to see how to practically, pragmatically apply it in stock or option trading or what are the asset markets people have, right? So you're looking, I mean, when you're applying it, are you applying it with the uh, with some forecasting model, which is using some probability distribution of the movement. But you have to have some idea of what the probability distribution is. Um, yeah, but I'm what saying I'm saying what... is it's not enough to just know the probability distribution because you want the kind of bet that has the same probability distribution over and over again. You see what I'm saying? So it's not enough to have one static probability distribution. Yeah, that's what I'm say saying. So it doesn't have to be on the price, right? It could be on relative uh, relative price. So for example, when you do pairs trading, there are specific pairs that are available in the market uh, where you could do pairs trading and um, the probability distribution repeats in itself from a standpoint of uh, the pair moving from uh, a negative divergence to a positive diversion literally happens like clockwork across the board, right? So for example, if you take 
SPGI and MCO, uh, the two ratings agencies, uh, and if right. you look at their first rating uh, on a five-minute chart or a two-minute chart across the day, uh, or if you take the EV to EBITDA, uh, if you are doing slightly longer term expected uh, forecast trade, then that kind of a quantitative assessment does have a similar repetitive outcome profile as Kelly suggests. So is it those kind of strategies that you applied for or are you just using it for your you know, downright long only kind of speculation? How do you apply it? Well, so it, it, it really depends on the situation. So uh, I don't apply Kelly to stock trading. Uh, so I do Kelly mostly with respect to options. And uh, the, the reason is I have a greater degree of confidence in predicting the probability distribution of the value of an option. Uh, maybe, uh, 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 say, say, if the option expires in three months, then I, I can do uh, various kinds of calculations. Like, for example, I can figure out how the Greeks will, will decay and things like that. Uh, there is a standard theory for this uh, based on Black-Scholes and uh, a, a whole lot of uh, other um, pricing methods for, for options, but Black-Scholes is the most common. So if you know the rudiments of how options work and things like that, uh, you can uh, reasonably well come up with a probability distribution. And then you can also actually check that distribution because you, uh, you, you can uh, do uh, volatility surfaces and implied probabilities and Im implied volatility and, and things like that. And so you, you have a fairly good idea if you look at a large number of options chains, what uh, kinds of distributions you're looking at. But the problem here again is, you know the probability distribution for the next three months. You have no idea whether that same probability distribution will repeat after, uh, in, from, from three months from now to six months from now. So what about six months from now to nine months from now? Things like that. And Kelly right. requires that you need to have the same probability distribution over and over again. Correct. That's why I was sharing with you that, you know, instead of trying to do it directionally, where there's a delta direction underlying rate, right, which has a stochastic in itself. Uh, one could do it on spreads, or one could do it on uh, some specific uh, quantitative arbitrage strategy or statistical arbitrage strategies. In which, well, if you if you are reasonably confident that those distributions will uh, remain so in the in yes. the future, then yeah. do, uh, yeah. that opens the door to applying Kelly type strategies. Correct, correct. So I was more keen on trying to understand if there are other such strategies because I use it in three ways, right? One is index dispersion. Uh, second is what I explained about the pair strategy. And then uh, third is that uh, if, if there's a arbitrage available between ETF and its components um, in an almost an automated way. So um, I don't like manually click to get into the trade it's just automated and just executes so i i was trying to understand or discover if there's more strategies like that now let's say if kelly criterion is not as much as you use in your normal trading are there other position sizing methods that you use oh there are all, all kinds of position sizing methods so uh, it essentially depends on the probability distribution again so um, you have to have a view of how long you're building a position for. So 
for example, I have mentioned before that one one third of my uh, uh, portfolio is is Berkshire, and it's it's now slightly higher than one third because the uh, the stock has gone up relative to the other things in my portfolio. But uh, when I look at Berkshire, the the part of my portfolio, I have a very very long term time horizon for that particular position in the portfolio. So over this time horizon, I should have some idea of what kind of returns that I'm expecting from from a stock. So if if a stock has a, a particular return on capital, if you, if you go and analyze the fundamentals of a, of a business and figure out that, okay, this business has a certain amount of return on capital and it can, uh, the, the business can reinvest so much of capital back into itself every year. Then that gives you a very, very crude uh, approximation to what the stock is is going to is likely to return over a very long period of time, if these returns continue to hold steady and things like that. Uh, so, if you have this view about uh, what the stock is likely to return over a long period of time, then uh, you you can do the same for different stocks, and then you can figure out based on uh, the these these different probability distributions, uh, how, how to size your positions. But here again, you have to take into account correlations. So you, you, you have to look at uh, correlations between the individual stocks in your portfolio. So if you have uh, two, two or three stocks and they're all tied to the housing sector or something like that, or you have two or three stocks and they're all restaurant stocks or something like that, uh, you, you might have to uh, adjust for correlations and things like that. But uh, th- this sort of thing is reasonably well understood in the in the markets. So you uh, th- do- doing a basic analysis of correlation and then deciding what positions to use uh, for each stock in the portfolio. You you can apply Markowitz's theory and things like that. Uh, you can also uh, do it through uh, Kelly and so on. But then uh, each each approach has its own pros and cons, as it were. So on the call, just wanted to share. There's uh, there's a slightly more detailed book, uh, which is Ed Thorpe along with other authors called as Kelly Capital Growth Investment Criteria and the Theory and Practice. Um, I've read it. Uh, I would encourage anyone who wants to deploy it to take a look at it. I had very limited application of it in cases such as what I explained about pair strategy as well as some specific arbitrage strategies. Um, I couldn't apply Kelly to broader portfolio or other strategies that I have uh, and I have a large playbook of strategies that I deploy in a core satellite format. So as you explained, you have Berkshire as your core, probably I have a core, which is about 60%, you know, geographically, globally uh, diversified. And then uh, there's uh, the remaining uh, 30, 35% is primarily in various satellites. Uh, so they could be event driven satellite, option st- satellite, so on and so forth. So, um, or earning satellite, for instance, earning season is coming up now, um, and then it ends up providing uh, decent uh, annual uh, returns with uncorrelated set of bits over a period of time, uh, helping with the capital. So, yeah, thank you for uh, you know sharing this uh, devil's uh, card piece. Uh, just want to share that with everyone. Thank you for uh, right. The the Kelly Criterion book is a lovely one. Uh, it's actually put together by uh, by a bunch of people. So it's it's not written by Ed Thorpe. 
it's a collection of papers uh, written by a whole bunch of different people right. and uh, both Ed Thorpe and a fellow mathematician uh, his name is William Ziemba yep. uh, they have both sort of edited this collection and put it together and uh, included commentary on the side and and things like that uh, and in fact one of the, the the first paper in this book is actually Daniel Bernoulli's paper the the paper that i was talking about where he introduced the the idea of utility and uh, the utility theory and expected utility maximization and things like that. So yeah, it's it's a lovely book. Okay, do we have uh, any more callers? Okay, we have we have one from Ricardo. Hello. Once again, thanks for having this program. I have to say I'm probably the 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 beginner or the novice in this group now. Um, but what I would like you to break down for me is, and for others who probably not so advanced in in mathematics and the theories as your other callers um how we can use what we learn from this game because you gave us a lot of things you gave me a lot of things to think about for example the value of a million dollar to you or elon musk would have different um ways and also the thought of the maximum loss from the game would be um you would still end up walking away with up probably about 450,000 or thereabouts if you pick the um, devil's card initially. So those are some points I'll, I got from it. I'll have to listen over the first part again with the, the principle to kind of write down and digest those principles. But I want two questions. How would you yourself approach this game? Okay. Uh, and two, for a novice, for a beginner, how can they apply this principle if they were to play this game in real life investing um, without, say, a knowledge of advanced maths or so? Um, so that's uh, my two right. questions. So, okay, so they're, they're both excellent questions. So the, the first question is, how would I approach this game? So, uh, well, so to approach this game, you first have to have some idea of how much $1 million is worth to you. So uh, the, I have two things that are going for me. So uh, one, one thing is uh, I, I don't need a whole lot of money to uh, survive because I'm a reasonably frugal kind of guy and I have a reasonably well-paying job and things like that. The second thing is uh, I'm still fairly young. So uh, I have a long uh, sort of runway of earnings uh, and income ahead of me. So if you ask me to play this game uh, with, with $1 million, uh, I probably will uh, 
we'll try to um, maybe choose k equals three or something like that. So um, maybe two or three, uh, not, not, not more than that. Um, so so the, the reason why I would do that is uh, if, if I could say, um, uh, take, take a million dollars and make it eight million, okay, um, uh, through, through this, this game almost instantly, then I'm, I'm pretty much settled for life. Okay, so um, you know, with with eight million dollars, I I can just um, I'm I'm I, I I consider that as enough for financial independence or whatever. So so this is a life changing amount of uh, wealth for me at at this stage. So I would definitely, uh, if there is a chance of getting that, uh, I I would definitely go for it. But on the other hand, if I get the devil's card. Then what happens is one my my one million dollars gets reduced to uh, five hundred thousand dollars. Now if I'm a retiree and I'm going to retire next year and I don't have any other source of income and this one million was my retirement corpus, I would not take that risk that it it could go to five hundred k. But I'm young, I have plenty of uh, uh, sort of income producing years ahead of me. So yes, this one million to five hundred k would be sort of a setback, but Hey, um, you know, uh, on on balance, if you if you look at the risk-adjusted reward, I, I would put myself somewhere uh, at at uh, k equals two or k equals three. If I if I could get four million or eight million out of this game, uh, I I will do that and then get out. Uh, so so this is how I I think about this. Uh, the second question is, uh, okay, how do you take all these um, general principles and Maybe to somebody who's not as mathematically inclined or something like that, how would you apply these things to investing? So, um, so a lot of these things, if, if you if you if you look at Daniel Bernoulli's paper, so Dan, Daniel Bernoulli was one of the sort of preeminent mathematician. He wrote this paper in 1738, and at the time he wrote this paper, uh, math knowledge was not that advanced. So if you if you look at high school students today, they are learning more math than probably uh, they're learning many things that Daniel Bernoulli probably did not know in 1738. And he was the one who, who came up with these kinds of ideas. So if you read that paper, you, you will understand that there's there's really not a whole lot of math in it. It's just uh, an argument for how to think about the utility of money. And it's essentially the same thing. I mean, I, I use Elon Musk today and uh, Bernoulli's paper uh, does not use Elon Musk because Musk was not alive at that time, but uh, he just uh, uses some some other rich man uh, and, and argues based on uh, how, how a poor man will see a certain sum of money and how a rich man will see a certain sum of money. It's, uh, it, it's the concept that is important to understand. Now, of course, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that math is not important or anything like that. Uh, a certain amount of math is, uh, is absolutely essential for every investor. But what I am trying to say is that that amount of math can be learned fairly easily, uh, even if you don't know it. And a lot of people already know this math simply because they've been through uh, high school. Simple things like uh, uh, you know compounding or uh, how, how to calculate an IRR or things like this. Now, of course, there is some terminology gap here. Uh, so mo most people who know compounding, they intrinsically, they know how to calculate IRRs, but they have never seen IRR as a concept 
before. So they think they don't know how to calculate an IRR. So if I, if I ask you, do, you, do you know how to calculate IRRs? You may say no, but if I ask you, do you know the compound interest formula? I say yes. Okay, so it's, it's kind of the same thing. It's just a slightly more general variant of this. So simple things uh, like, uh, I, I gave the example of IRRs, but you, you can think of doing a DCF, for example, a discounted cash flow analysis. Uh, these are all very, very simple mathematical things that uh, I think in anybody who spends a small amount of effort uh, going through uh, either my threads or going through some simple books on uh, basic finance can get the level of math that is required to understand these concepts. So if, if you take any economics, uh, introductory economics textbook, um, say, say, Gregory Mankiw or something like that, if you actually go through all the examples, there isn't a whole lot of math there. It's all just simply, you know, supply curves and demand curves and how curves shift when you apply when when some shock happens to the system and things like that. It it it's not a whole lot of math. So my my advice would be, you know, don't don't worry too much that it's getting mathematical or anything like that. Just try to understand the core concept and uh, try to do some basic math, uh, but Beyond that, you probably won't need a whole lot of math as, as an investor. Uh, so th this, this is what I would like to say. Does, does that answer the question? Do you have any follow-on questions? Um, thank you very much. Just one other um, comment. Even though your emphasis is on investment and um, investment and economics, this I can see where this whole thinking in this game can be applied to other areas. For example, I am more in the medical field and mm -hmm. the risk does come into play with, for example, Down syndrome. For example, just to illustrate, at the age of 30, a woman has a risk of Down syndrome of one in a thousand. At 35, the risk is one in 250. And the risk at 45 years old is now one in 30. So I think this program is very good because it's not only limited to investment and economics. It kind of broadens your mind to be thinking about risk, even in areas that not related to finance. So oh, really a good program. So it's really eye-opening to be here today because some of this level of thinking actually can be applied in other areas. So thank you very much. Right, exactly. That, that is such a great point. And uh, if, if you read uh, books by Nassim Talib, uh, he, he has a large number of examples. Um, you know, he, he has this whole thing called uh, Lindy, uh, the, the Lindy effect in, uh, in his book called, the, uh, I, I think it was anti-fragile, but it might have been one of the other books. But uh, but he, he takes the Lindy effect and applies it to just so many different things. Uh, so, so if you know the basic concepts of probability, um, they, they apply well beyond just investing and, and so on. So it's uh, that, that's a great point. Uh, the, the next caller is Vinod. Hi, Tinky. Can you Hello. hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Yeah. Thanks for hosting this session. That's wonderful. Puzzle. Um, I have two questions. It's 
more of a follow up to the previous point that you touched upon and also it is related to the presentation which you provided to the intuit community sometime last year um, where you talked about uh, uh, what is the optimal or the various math concepts as an investor we need to know you plotted uh, some basic concepts like compounding and then retirement planning and all the way up to probabilities probability and uh, sensitivity analysis and also you made a point or maybe you also highlighted reiterated it a couple of times so the, beyond a point uh, learning math might not add any value or maybe you might not uh, have any applications to the investments or maybe it uh, reduces the return uh, maybe if you can elaborate uh the idea behind that thought process uh that will help probably i will uh, i will hold my second question uh, till you answer this okay so uh i don't think i've ever said that uh, beyond a point math is going to actively harm you as an investor <laughs> or anything like that uh so what i did say is that uh see uh all all investors need to know a certain bare minimum amount of math in my opinion uh so uh, this is the basic math of compounding you know the basic math of uh, doing taxes so th those those of you who are in the us um so ap april 15th is uh, is tax day right and um, so so uh, so if if you if you have uh, a particular stock in your portfolio and then uh, you, you essentially have two options you can continue holding and deferring taxes on it or uh, you can uh, churn out of this stock and into some other stock and uh, you you can do things that way but then you will have a tax uh, you, you'll incur a cost in terms of taxes so now the the question is how do you analyze this which which is better is it better to incur a cost every year or is it better to incur uh, one final cost uh, later in time uh, so so it it turns out that there is a big difference between these two scenarios and it's uh, much easy it, it works out much more economically advantageous to you if you can defer taxes uh, until a later period of time so this is a very simple math the math of deferred taxes and uh, the the simple things that charlie munger talks about you know the the return that an investor gets from investing in a company Uh, over a long period of time that is going to approximate the return that the company earns on its own capital if it is able to reinvest that capital and so on so these basic math concepts uh, it's i i think it's necessary for every investor to sort of understand them but there there are more esoteric math concepts so for example the the kelly criterion or shannon's demon or things like that uh they are somewhat more esoteric math concepts not every investor needs those concepts in fact there are many successful investors who are uh, who've achieved a tremendous amount of uh, uh, successes as investors they they know nothing about the kelly criteria it's it's perfectly fine uh now of course if you're going to be doing options trading or uh, if if you're going to be doing a specific kind of uh investing that requires you to know the kelly criterion backwards and forwards then yes of course you have to learn the math but uh if if you're just going to buy and hold stocks for the long term or something like that you don't necessarily have to know all the math behind the kelly criterion or anything like that right so beyond the point the incremental returns you get from learning more and more math uh they tend to go down over time uh 
but uh, initially, if you, as you learn the basics, so for example, suppose you, you take an investor who knows nothing about compounding. If you just teach them the compound interest formula, immediately they are a much better investor because they know the compound interest formula, which they did not know before, right? So um, the basic math concepts have much bigger bang for the buck than more advanced math concepts. So that 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 is what I was trying to okay. argue there. Okay, makes sense. I think that's the reason for the the S curve is also flattening on the top end. Uh, beyond beyond a point, it might not add maybe a incremental value rather than um, maybe whatever you know already. Probably that would be more than sufficient. Uh, is it the right way of treating it? I think so. I think so. So the basic math okay. an investor needs to know basic risk management, uh, just basic probability, um, basic how, how to calculate uh, ratios in financial statements and things like that. Um, simple things about this Charlie Munger model for how businesses work, how they reinvest capital back into themselves. Um, yeah. You know, sim simple things like working with spreadsheets. Yeah, if you, if you just know that, um, you, you probably know more math than uh, more, many other investors. And and you probably have all the math you need to succeed as an investor just right there. Sure, sure. Thanks, thanks for that. And my second question is on more about, uh, so based on your writing and also the way you deliver the content, you're more on the fundamental uh, uh, investor, right? So where you take a deep dive on business and try to understand it. Just Curious to understand, uh, sometimes you talk about uh, the option strategies as well. What you see uh, as a fundamental investor, like uh, just because you uh, may be more interested in probabilities and math concepts, that's why you see that as a potential instrument to boost your return, or is it, uh, uh, or it is a real uh, edge it provides beyond the fundamental directly buying the stocks? Uh, where uh, by applying maybe thinking in terms of bits and looking at uh, as a kind of alternative in, uh, instrument to boost your return. Uh, right, absolutely. That's a great question. Uh, so there are uh, two or three points that I will make here. So the first point is um, just because you're a fundamental investor doesn't mean you shouldn't uh, trade options or anything like that. Uh, so imagine uh, you have two investors, okay? One one investor has access only to stocks. The second investor has access both to stocks and options. Uh, now, of course, the second investor can do everything that the first investor can, but the second investor can also do lots of extra things that the first investor can't because the second investor has access to options, right? So um, when it comes to finance and uh, financial instruments, it helps to uh, familiarize yourself with a number of different uh, vehicles, even if you're not going to use You may find that there are some opportunities there that people have overlooked, or uh, you, you may find that uh, there is a risk reward uh, trade-off over there uh, that is better than the risk reward trade-off over here. So very often when I try to go and invest in, uh, in in a stock, for example, when I try to analyze a company, uh, what I do is uh, I go and look at the options chain for that company as well. And then this lets me sort of figure out 
whether is is the stock a better investment or is the option a better investment uh, or is there an option strategy that can give me better returns than the stock strategy or can it give me the same amount of returns as the stock strategy but at a lower level of risk uh, things like that so uh, I, I do all these kinds of things and uh, so, so just by expanding my universe uh, to to options as well not just stocks uh, i i am potentially opening the door to improving uh, my returns over the long term so this is my uh, this is why i get into options and do things but of course uh, to your earlier point if you want to get into options you uh, have to know a lot more math than uh, if you're just doing stocks so um, options are definitely more complicated and they are not for everybody and you you have to spend a, a certain amount of time uh, trying to learn the math and trying to learn the fundamental concepts and things like that and uh, to me it's a, it's just a lot of fun to learn these concepts and so on and there are lots of people on twitter who uh, who are very good at this stuff and they they provide lots of content for free and uh you you can learn a lot from them and things like that it's it's just a lot of fun so that that's the second reason why i like to learn about options and things like that i just like to wrestle with all these uh ideas okay great thank you much appreciated okay okay uh, do, so uh, it looks looks like manu has uh, has another uh comment or question yeah i just wanted to add uh, you know someone mentioned almost as if fundamental and options are at odds so just to give a perspective even warren buffett sells options right so at the at the abyss of the 2008 2009 financial crisis he wrote a multi year put option on the s&p 500 which was a very famous trade it fetched him billions of dollars um, yes in the next following few years so uh, he does play options as well uh, and not just on the writing the put option side but also in his mind he is thinking of probability distribution as well right that okay you know in march of 2009 we hit 666 the satan's number on s&p 500 and in his mind it was absurd that we had reached that kind of level uh, as we saw in march 2020 oh sorry may 2020 during his annual boxer had the meeting he said do not bet against america right so it kind of signifies how he also looks at it in fact it's interesting that in um, a 2007 publication um, ed thorpe actually mentioned that how uh, warren buffett's boxer hathaway was set out uh, to deliver uh, the kind of returns which a typical kelly type better would have uh, specifically he mentioned that you know it had already uh, showed a growth path quite similar to that of a full kelly betting so if someone wants to you know do more research on uh how that may apply to someone who's a fundamental investor such as Warren Buffett through his investment vehicle in form of a failed textile company which is Berkshire Hathaway in order to generate excess returns uh, one can just look into that history and see how uh, even Warren Buffett is a Kelly type better <laughs> so oh, uh, I, right absolutely so so Warren Buffett knows a, a ton of math that he doesn't let on so he he likes to uh, project this image uh, that he's this uh, uh, you know foxy old grandpa and he doesn't do a whole lot of math and he doesn't have a computer on his desk and things like that but 
he's it really sharp. From... He, he knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He knows his math and he actually, it's not that he wants to convey an image. He he learned that in his public speaking class, uh, which he took, right? He boasts about his public speaking um, uh, that he learned, uh, especially when he decided that he wanted to start a business. Uh, he learned that he needs to improve on his communication skill. So he's, he's not just aware of his strengths, he's also aware of his shortcomings. And while working on that, he realized that when you are uh, speaking, it has to be extremely clear. The same with his writings. His writings are fairly straightforward and clear if one goes through his letters uh, pretty to the point. Uh, and I've seen something similar with Bezos as well. You know, in the last few years, Bezos, especially since last six years, Bezos' letters have become more and more uh, clearer, uh, but last two years were filled with just Amazon services. That's a different story. Uh, but before that, well, 2000- yes. clear, clear communication is absolutely uh, of the essence to to any business leader. But uh, clear communication can be orthogonal to projecting a certain kind of image. So if if you're a shark and you can project an image that you're a dolphin, it is to your advantage. <laughs> exactly. And that's what he wants to do, right? Because he doesn't want right. to make people, you know, feel that, oh, he's doing some voodoo magic behind the scenes. Um, and he he doesn't date trade, right? So he clearly admits that folks like Ed Thorpe or Jim Simons have that as their uh, strong, you know, forte. And that's why they have consistently made money across by almost close to day trading kind of features in their uh, investment style and they've delivered their returns. Uh, but otherwise they don't believe it's that easy to do uh, unless you're a market maker, right? If you're a market maker like Virtue Financial or Citadel, you can have huge amount of success. And o- over there also, an intersection of math, computer science, software engineering, all these things are absolutely essential. Like if you see uh, the latest Bloomberg uh, leaders uh, discussion between David Rubinstein and uh, the Citadel chief, uh, Ken Griffin, you'll notice that he mentions that being a nerd has worked to his advantage. Um, Being a computer science nerd has worked to his advantage because he brought this unique intersection of software engineering and math and finance together in order to build Citadel and, you know, make that fortress. Um, And that's true for most of the execution that happens today. 99% 99% of the execution is not manual. It is uh, the, all the order matching, et cetera. It's all oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if, if you're a market maker, well, I, I, what I will say this is there is no one path to success in investing. So Ed Thorpe and uh, uh, so, so if Ed, Ed Thorpe is not really a market maker or anything like that. Uh, or when, when he was running his fund, he, he had a whole bunch of um, uh, different kinds of strategies. So uh, statistical arbitrage and uh, factor-based uh, trading methods. And he, he essentially had a whole whole kind, uh, whole kind gamut of different strategies that he was yeah, running yeah. at, uh, uh, yeah. at Princeton Newport. Right. A whole playbook uh, of strategies. Right. Um, and so, so uh, Ed Thorpe recognized. So, so great investors, including Ed Thorpe and Warren Buffett, they, they sort of recognize that to be uh, to, to to be that successful uh, you have to first find your strengths and you have to find an area of the market that is kind of attuned to your strengths you have to adapt uh, sort of 
uh, to the market uh, and you have to figure out where your skills are and you have to play to your strengths. And Ed Thorpe is great at this kind of quantitative stuff and uh, this beat the dealer and spotting these kinds of uh, statistical arbitrage opportunities and so on. But there is this famous story of a meeting between Ed Thorpe and Warren Buffett. Um, and uh, so, so one, one of Warren Buffett's, uh, when Buffett shut down his partnership, uh, some of his investors, they, uh, they were taking their money out of their partnership and putting it with other managers. And one of uh, his, uh, his partners, uh, one of Buffett's partners wanted to take his money and put it with Ed Thorpe. But before putting the money with Ed Thorpe, this guy wanted Warren Buffett to meet Ed Thorpe and just make sure that everything is okay and give uh, this guy his opinion of Ed Thorpe. And so Warren Buffett and Ed Thorpe met and there they recognized that uh, each, each person's investing style is very different, but each was also able to see the merit in the other person. In fact, that, that very night, uh, Ed, Ed Thorpe went home and uh, told, told his wife that one, one day Warren Buffett is going to be the richest man in America. And, and that turned out to be true. And uh, Warren Buffett was also very favorably impressed by Thorpe. And in fact, I think to this day, Thorpe has uh, a big part of his net worth in Berkshire stock. So they recognize that even though their individual styles of investing are very, very different from each other, uh, each, each of them has found one particular niche in the markets where they can exploit their unique strengths. And that, that is very key for an investor to understand. So first of all, we have to know ourselves. Where, where do our strengths lie? And then we have to find some area of the market, some kind of investment where uh, you know, we, we can do those investments and those investments play to our strengths, something like that. So um, both, both these investors are very, very good at that. And not just doing it themselves, but also recognizing it in other investors. What I wanted to also mention was when folks think of Berkshire Hathaway, right? Think of Berkshire Hathaway as an insurance operation, which is nothing but you're writing a lot of put options uh, across the board. So he has hired a whole bunch of underwriters in various companies for specialty, for PNC, for, you know, I mean, property and casualty and those kind of insurances in order to uh, write. And that itself by itself is uh, a very mathematical endeavor because the actuaries who underwrite that, they do a ton of modeling and mathematics. So think of him as, you know, he has hired a ton of options uh, writers in form of these insurance underwriters or actuaries who do the modeling in all these companies. He gets all that float and then he's free to invest it in medium to long term in companies of his choice for a period of time. So um oh right absolutely in insurance is very very highly mathematical and yeah uh, you, you have to not just understand each individual risk in itself but also how it plays out at a, at a portfolio level when you're insuring yeah. a whole bunch of risks together and so it's it's very similar to writing options correct uh, so exactly. you collect a premium Once right now for writing mm -hmm. the option and then if mm -hmm. something bad happens uh you you have to pay out at, at a later date. So it's it's very similar, but I don't yeah. know to what extent uh, Buffett does the day-to-day the -day insurance underwriting and things like no, that doesn't. at, at he doesn't. Berkshire. He, he doesn't. 
yeah he doesn't his his thought process is like an insurance company right so i mean so what i was trying to suggest was that for your in for your options portfolio especially if you are doing some credit uh, sort of strategies think of yourself as an insurance company and you should provision for same kind of um, you know pnl characteristics such as loss ratio combined combined ratio uh, your uh, overall expense ratio all of those specific ratios which are there built into the oh, insurance right, right. just absolutely, think of it absolutely. that way and then run your so what you're saying is uh, buffett understands insurance really well and yes. that gives him uh, an edge as an options writer as well yes 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 uh, that that, and, that, uh, that i think is absolutely true and the other way around also that if you are running an options book right if you have let's say 5% of your capital in options book you need to make hundreds of bets right throughout the year or maybe at least numerous bets if not hundreds maybe 10 20 50 not have like one bet and think that it will work out so your position sizing and your um overall assessment of how it's going to work out in your favor convexity wise or otherwise uh, has to be of that mindset when i learned that 10 years ago from a market maker right because i was not a good option trader from 2003 to 2011 one day i got like a big master class from a uh, options market maker who was also the founder of livewall.com um, which eventually got sold to cboe but uh, he he basically i got this complete sense that you need to have at least like 50 60 bets going in with you know defined risk or whatever uh, in order to make money as an insurance uh, underwriter does and your modeling needs to factor in for all of that and just like how you said you know correlations wise factor wise um if you're making 10 credit bets in options and all those 10 are from the same sector and if you end up facing losses then too bad you are not a good underwriter right so learn how to become a good underwriter uh, for underwriting that risk and then play it out that way it, that is if you are thinking of going to options writing if you're not thinking of going into options writing and just using it for leverage the different ball game altogether uh right absolutely but there there is always this trade off between finding finding the the right number of options and finding options that are mispriced so ideally you may like to have 50 or 60 options contracts uh in different kinds of options in your portfolio but what if you are not able to find those many mispriced options so with 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 buffett he uh he basically just wrote one big option right yeah. <laughs> this this particular option strategy on the s&p finded that we talked about uh, yeah, but yeah. but yeah other other okay. things being equal more diversification in an options portfolio is better than less diversification but it it shouldn't come at the cost of uh, selling options uh, at a mispriced uh, quote or something like that true true absolutely absolutely thank you so much uh, so do we do we have any any more callers or is this it okay you you guys know how to reach me you can always send me dms if you have uh, more questions or comments Th- thank you all very much for showing up uh, it was great and uh, see see you next sunday bye bye